Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let's pray. Jesus, again and again, we just keep repeating the request of the disciples in Luke's gospel. Lord, teach us to pray. In particular, as we come to the movement of forgiveness, God, give us hearts that are humble enough to ask and humble enough to give. Shape us, Lord. And then we pray. Amen. We'll go ahead and be seated. Well, uh, like I said, the Lord's Prayer, as we keep kind of just saying over and over again, I'm now getting to the point of feeling like I'm saying it over and over again to the point of exhaustion, which means some of you are just now getting it, and that's okay. That's part of teaching. But the Lord's Prayer is both given by Jesus for us to pray just as we read it, but also based off of a couple of things we've been teaching out over the past few weeks, what seems far more likely is Jesus is giving this as a model, a paradigm, like a skeleton for prayer to guide us. And the best way to kind of understand how that works is by identifying these six movements or six words, which you've been going at over the past five weeks. You'll see behind me uh, each movement of the Lord's Prayer, the Father movement, contemplating God as our heavenly Father, the name movement, adoring God's character in his name, the kingdom movement, which is about intercession for God's kingdom and his will. Last week, Pastor Isaac taught us on the movement of, of bread, of petition for our daily needs, and this week brings us to the movement of forgiveness. That's funny because we're right here at Thanksgiving and most churches all over the world are like, it's Gratitude Sunday. And they're doing sermons about like Thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff. No, man, we know what the real problem is going into a week where a lot of you are going to be with family. It's forgiveness. That's the thing we got to focus on. So this morning we're looking at forgiveness. Now, just a couple of key things to identify here is one, that this forgiveness movement has kind of a, a two-prong approach and kind of two... Um, predicaments within the prayer. Now, the first is that Jesus assumes our need to daily ask for forgiveness. And similarly, underneath that, a daily need to give forgiveness. And this challenges a lot of our assumptions because based on how you might have been raised in or outside of the church, most of us presume forgiveness to be, one, kind of a given, in the words of Henrik Hein, he was a German poet um, in the 1700s on his deathbed, the kind of the saying that he said was, God will forgive me, it's his job, right? We just assume that God, that's what he, he's just, he's a forgiving guy. And so we just, we, we take forgiveness as a given. The second thing that we do is we largely consider repentance and confession as a one and done kind of thing. I prayed that prayer, you know, with grandma, you know, when I was four and now I'm good, Right? And then also we presume forgiveness as being, the forgiveness from God as being completely separate from our reaction to, our response, our behavior towards others. We take the idea of God's grace and mercy as being the basis of forgiveness and we separate it from no matter what I do. There's nothing I can do that will you know, get in the way of that forgiveness. And yet the Lord's Prayer almost gets after all of those. The Lord's Prayer is it, that forgiveness of God, yes, motivated by his mercy and grace, but it's not a given. It's something that we have to open ourselves up to receive. It comes through repentance. Similarly, it's not a one-and-done thing. Jesus here is saying forgiveness is a daily need. Just as much as you got to pray for daily bread, like last week, apparently you got to pray for daily forgiveness. This is not a very high view of our life, like the way that we are, is it? And also, Jesus here ties together our forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of us in a, in a way that, that challenges us. And it's so central for Jesus. It's the one line of the Lord's Prayer that gets a PS, that gets a footnote. If you have your Bibles open, you just look right after verse 13. Don't bring us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. What does he say? For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But... If you do not forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. We just sit with Jesus' words for a moment. We're going to explain and get into it. Just, do you see the weight here of the forgiveness movement? 
It, it, it causes us to think in new ways about forgiveness than what many of us have taught. And so, again, you know, this is, we're letting Jesus shape our way of relating to him in prayer. He's teaching us to pray here. And now, two things that we're going to do on the forgiveness thing. In a moment, we're going to come back to Jesus says, why are those two so tied up? Our forgiveness of others and God's forgiveness of us. And what does that look like? We're going to come to that. But first, we just have to identify and acknowledge and spend some time just acknowledging what uh, the late Tim Keller refers to as that, that our age, our moment that we're in, he identified as the fading of forgiveness. What he found is that we are in cultural moment and culture does all the stuff that it does throughout history, but we are in a unique moment in which forgiveness is, is not the assumed. Forgiveness is not the primary way that we consider what justice and mercy looks like. If the Lord's Prayer calls us to asking for forgiveness and giving it, the fading of forgiveness means both of those. First, we'll talk about the asking of forgiveness. Nijay Gupta, he's a New Testament scholar, great book on the Lord and his prayer. He opens the chapter on forgiveness with this. The year 2016 was a presidential election year in the United States with a tight race between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Throughout his campaign, Trump claimed to represent and defend Christianity, yet he repeated publicly that he never asked God for forgiveness. I like to be good, he said. I don't like to ask for forgiveness, and I'm good. I don't do a lot of things that are bad. When asked about what he does when he does make a bad choice, Trump responded, I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think I have ever asked God for forgiveness. If I think I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. Now, I can feel all of you backing away from me. <laughs> come in. Come close. It's going to be okay. What I'm trying to make here is not a political statement. What I'm trying to make here is not anything about, about Trump. But what Nijay Gupta goes on to do in the chapter is what he identifies is that though you and I may not have done or allegedly done the things that Trump has done, the reality is his, he, we're, we're amazed, but he's simply just saying out loud what most of us how we relate to our bad choices, how most of us relate to the things that we do. We say, I'm a, you know, I'm a, we, we exaggerate our goodness. We downplay our badness. And when we go into the badness, we, we don't talk about it. We just try to move on and do a better job next time. But we certainly don't humble ourselves enough to own what we've done publicly before others. This is blame shifting. This is ignoring it. This is what Adam and Eve do in the garden after eating from the forbidden tree. What do they do? They run. They realize they're naked. They realize their shame. And so they hide from one another and from God. It's what I did in the fourth grade. I came home with a report card that was less than stellar. And what did Ryan do? Walking off of the bus before going into the house, there's a big bush by the side of our house. I took that report card and I shoved it in as deep as I could and I left it behind. And, and the thing is, is Adam and Eve's story, and even little Ryan there in the fourth grade, this continues to be the way that we deal with the bad choices when we make them. We hide, we cover, we adorn ourselves in fig leaves of, of good behavior and of the good things that we've done while trying to hide the shame. And so this is one of the primary problems. But the problem is, is that that works until it doesn't. Sooner or later, dad is doing yard work and he finds the report card. You can run and hide from God, but he's God. He's going to find you sooner or later, right? And then the problem comes then when our failures become public. We've tried ignoring and just doing better next time, but now it's public. There's other people holding us to account for what we've said or what we've done. But then what we approach to is, is coming to terms with naming that's actually who I am, naming that's actually what I've done. We take on a counterfeit form of forgiveness that's called being excused. So this is what I've done, but that's not really me. Right? Some, something else caused me to do this. Something else made me be that way. It's what Adam does with Eve. The woman, she gave me the fruit. It's what Eve does with, to the serpent. The serpent, he got me to do it. We, we blame shift and we push off the ownership for what's done onto, we can do it with therapy, that it's like, it's my mommy issue, right? And that's the reason why I did what I did. And that doesn't mean that there's not a root, an explanation of what made it, but we still are culpable volitional, responsible humans. And so we look to push the responsibility off. This is what uh, Woody Allen, the quote now that's taken and everybody takes it as like a good thing. The quote, the line is, the heart wants what the heart wants. 
We, you all now take that as a given, as a true and good thing. The, who coined that phrase was Woody Allen defending his relationship with Sunyi, a dramatic, like, a inappropriately younger woman who is actually the daughter of his ex. And everybody, you know, celebrity, you know, cancel culture before it was cool, was going after him. And his defense was the shrug of the heart wants what the heart wants. It was the excuse. And this is what continues today. And like all, every single one of the like Apple Notes screenshot apologies that like are how we apologize now. Like every single celebrity, when something happens now, for some reason, it's always Apple Notes, screenshot, and you, you just realize that this is like the 17th draft that that person has been dealing with, where it's not honest, it's not owning, and every single one of them you will find, I did this, but. It was, it was one of my employees that they gave me this, right? So what happens is we've just moved into a culture where rather than owning humbly, yes, I did this, we more and more become, I'm actually a good person, and it was these extenuating circumstances. We say, I just, I lo- I just lost my temper, I was just tired. I just didn't have all the information that I needed. It was all these other extenuating circumstances that made me say that thing, right? We say, I just, I just, I blew it. And for the millennials in here, it's, it's the line um, from Litz, uh, my, my own worst enemy, anybody? Am I alone in this? Right, what's the like, repeated line of the chorus? Can we forget about the things I said when I was drunk? I didn't mean to call you that, right? What is, that is not the words of looking for forgiveness. That's the excuse, I didn't mean to call you that. It was the, it was the booze's fault, right? It was the, I was drunk. And so the problem is, is what happens is we try ignoring, we try hiding, it gets out into the public, and so we look for an excuse. And most often the excuse is, I, I just blew it. And we think this gets us out. Dallas Willard, and I'm just gonna, before we go into this quote, I'm telling you, this is going to, if you have ears to hear, this will shake the way that you consider how you relate to yourself and the world. This, I have like a before and after moment of my life with this quote. So we're going in treading softly. Dallas Willard says, one of the most common rationalizations of sin or folly is, oh, I just blew it. While there is some point to such a remark, it's not the one those who use it hope for. It doesn't exonerate or excuse them. While it may be true that there are other circumstances in which I would not have done the foolish or sinful thing I did, and while what I did may not represent me fully, blowing it does represent me fully. He continues, I am the kind of person who blows it. I'm the kind of person who loses my temper. I'm the kind of person who gets drunk on a regular basis, like in, right? I, I, what I did when I was like that may not be about me, but the, the thing that got me there is still part of me. Blowing it shows who I am as a person. I am through and through in my deepest self, the kind of person who blows it. Hardly a lovely and promising thing to be. So this is the reality is what we do is we look for excuses because the ignoring and the hiding didn't work. But the problem is, is all of our excuses ultimately only do more damage to us because we actually name that there's something going on within me that I am not as I should be. All of our attempts to do anything but name who I am and ask for forgiveness actually just take us deeper and further into shame and guilt and fear. How are we doing? Okay. Now, here's the problem is that culturally, as, as enough people start doing this, and in particular, well, we'll get into this in a moment, but as enough people start doing this, what ends up happening is our response then to people that are ignoring and excusing what they've done, in particular when it's abuse or injustice is we swing onto the other side then and we say, if they're not going to ask for forgiveness, then we're not going to give it. And we take on a policy where as a response to the counterfeit forgiveness that is excuse and ignoring, we take on the, uh, the alternative policy that's either no forgiveness or achieved forgiveness. Either you blew it, it's over, it's done, and be gone with you, right? So we dump our friends or we cancel celebrities or whatever, Or we say, okay, there is some way out of this for you, but it's going to require enough groveling and humiliation before we let you start over again. Or you've got to like disappear into the woods for like a couple of years and then you can come back with an album that explains, you know, how much better you are now and we all applaud you. No, that's just like everyone? No, okay. And so what ends up happening then is we find ourselves then in this tension point between Ignoring or excusing injustice and abuse and our failures leads to 
Uh, it's basically saying, then we're not going to give forgiveness at all. In the words of Sabine Birdsong, she has a famous write-up she did in the middle of the Me Too, um, when that was really at high swing, that, that was entitled, To Hell with Forgiveness Culture. She was saying, this kind of forgiveness, this cheap forgiveness that's like, forgive and forget, let's move on, don't hold the burden of that. What that does is that undercuts justice, it undercuts things being put right. And she's and, and She's right. That that kind of ignoring or excusing form of forgiveness does not get us as a culture where we need to go. And so the question then comes, so then how do we enter into this? Where do we move forward? What does this look like? Claire Dederer, she wrote this uh, piece, once again, also at the height, back in 2017, the height of the Me Too stuff. Uh, Me Too stuff, that's it, that puts it so lightly. But in the midst of those conversations, in the midst of allegations and all that coming forward, she wrote a piece in the Paris Review that was entitled, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men? In particular for her is, is real consideration on Woody Allen in particular. She grew up loving his movies. And then as this stuff came together, what do I do with, with Woody Allen there? And, and most of the, um, it, it's fairly long, it's worth the read. There's language, um, some of you, you know. Um, but... Um, so most of the article reads exactly like you would assume from, from most of what was being written around that time around what do we do with the art of, of these monstrous men. And yet about uh, three quarters of the way through, Claire Detter, the author, she makes this shift that is profound. And, and like that Alice Willard one will we'll shake you. Um, she says, when you're having a moral feeling, self-congratulation is never far behind. You are setting your emotion in a bed of ethical language and you are admiring yourself for doing it. The transmission of our virtue feels extremely important and weirdly exciting. She continues, yet I can sense there's something entirely unacceptable lurking inside me. Even in the midst of my righteous indignation about Woody and Sunyi, I know that on some level, I'm not entirely upstanding citizen myself. Sure, I'm attuned to my children, thoughtful with my friends. I keep a cozy house, listen to my husband, and am reasonably kind to my parents. In everyday deed and thought, I'm decent enough. But there's something else as well. Something vaguely responding a, well, monster. I suppose this is the human condition. This sneaking suspicion of our own badness. It lies at the heart of our fascination with people who do awful things. Something in us, in me, chimes to that awfulness, recognizes it in myself, is horrified by that recognition, and then thrills to the drama of loudly denouncing the monster in question. The psychic theater of the public condemnation of monsters can be seen as a kind of elaborate misdirection. Nothing to see here. I'm no monster. Meanwhile, hey, you might want to take a closer look at that guy over there. What she acknowledges is not Woody Allen or any abuser or any of the, that they shouldn't be held to account, that justice and even judgment, that those things should not be rendered. All Claire identifies is that in the midst of the uproar, there's a dangerous little part that she identifies in herself, that by placing all of the attention on the one who's ignoring or excusing their need for forgiveness, there is a, it's a fig leaf. It's, a, it's another form of hiding my own deep need, my own brokenness, and hiding in it. So again, don't mishear me as saying like, we shouldn't hold abusers to account. I'm, I'm just simply, Claire's onto something here. That when we begin to have righteous indignation, I find this all the time with, towards other people. I, what, what most often is coming out of that is it's a self-pride that I'm not like them. Meanwhile, hiding all the other ways in which I have my own deep, monstrous brokenness. So the, the, the problem then is when this, we don't become aware of this, our pursuit in our language of justice then is largely shaped not by restoration, not by reconciliation, not by the bringing about, of, or like I said, reconciliation and health and beauty and, and even right good consequences, but vengeance and anger. And the more that we steep each other up, the more that it continues. And so then the problem of what happens now is that if you have this chicken and the egg situation within culture. We're in a moment where we become increasingly resistant to asking for forgiveness, and so we also are becoming increasingly resistant to giving it, and it deepens further, further. Because the more that we see, I can't, that the moment that I name my faults, no one is gonna forgive me. I become that much more resistant to even opening up the door for people to see it. 
and I won't give it because I also keep, right? And so it continues and continues. Now, in the midst of all this, this brings society, this brings marriages, this brings relationships to a place of just untenable trajectory. Desmond Tutu, uh, it was the title of a book, but it was a quote that he's known for, is him simply saying, there's no future without forgiveness. Desmond Tutu, along with Hannah Arendt and, and Martin Luther King Jr., all represent these, these communities and groups which were horrifically oppressed in the 20th century. And yet they identified that in order for society to move forward, there has to be some framework of truth and reconciliation. Otherwise, it just... It, society crumbles. This is true of marriages. This is true of families. This is true of friendships. This is true of church communities. This is true of the world and culture as a whole. There is no future with forgiveness, without forgiveness. And so what we have to come into then is identifying that what we find within those like Tutu or Arendt or King is individuals who held out that the only way forward is forgiveness, but the kind of forgiveness that they were bringing us to was not a repetition of ignoring and excusing, but neither was it our, our current kind of uproar of no forgiveness or an achieved forgiveness. They had a robust, dynamic view of forgiveness that guided these movements, that brought about some of the greatest works of justice in the 20th and into the 21st century, motivated by a forgiveness which they all identified was defined by the person and the work and the teachings of Jesus. And so what is the kind of forgiveness that Jesus talks about? Just a few chapters over from the Lord's Prayer, if you want to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 18. How we do, I know that was heavy. So deep breath. We, we've, we've come out and now we're coming into, okay, so what does Jesus invite us into? What does this look like? It's evident we got a problem with it, but what does Jesus actually give us that might be a solution moving forward? Matthew 18 Beginning in verse 21, we get the longest segment of Jesus' teaching on forgiveness in the New Testament right here. And it starts as a question that moves into a story. Look with me, verse 21. Peter approached Jesus and asked him, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Pause. This is great and very funny. Peter's trying to be cool. So the common teaching of the rabbis and the Talmud was uh, the number for forgiveness three times. And then you can write them off and be done with them, right? So Peter comes to Jesus and he's like, hey, I know, you know, rabbi so-and-so down the street says three. How, uh, how about seven, Jesus? That's pretty cool, right? You know, holy number and all that, number of perfection, right? Seven, Jesus. I'm doing pretty good. What's Jesus say? I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. Now, some people have actually done the math and they're like, so it's, okay, you know, they get the calculator on it. It's forgiving this many times. The whole point of what Jesus is getting at here is it's, 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 an, it's, it's a number you don't count. It's, it's beyond keeping score. The kind of idea that Jesus is getting at here is if you're still counting, you're not forgiving. Uh, and this is in the words of, of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. Paul says, love keeps no record of wrong. So Jesus says, this is the kind of forgiveness that I'm calling you to. It's not a three strikes you're out. It's not even a seven strikes you're out. It's a forgiveness that keeps on giving. So why and how are we supposed to do this, Peter might ask. Jesus tells a parable. He tells a story. For this reason, this unstoppable, un, you know, ending forgiveness, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, we're gonna come back to that, was brought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I'll pay everything back. Verse 27, then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. So pause here. A couple of just big things to identify. One, we talk all the time. When we say, your kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus defines your kingdom come here as forgiveness, as the release of debt. And in particular, Jesus tells this story of a master or a king of a servant with a debt that the servant holds that, as we read, was 10,000 talents. Now, this is... Um, a silly amount. Because I don't know if you have the footnote, but a talent is worth about 6,000 denarii. So you guys know, we're good to go then. Or it says 20 years wages for a laborer. 
20 years wages for a 20 years of your salary is, is, is a talent. And what Jesus says here is 10,000s of those. So the math is the debt he has 200,000 years salary is the debt that he owes. Like this is like Bezos money we're talking here. Like this is, you have that, like imagine if, you know, Bezos put everything he had into, you know, whatever. And then that level of debt, how do you ever pay that back? The whole point Jesus is making is you don't. What he's talking about here is the servant who has an eternal debt toward the king. And so this is one of Jesus's ways when we go back to the Lord's prayer, Jesus going, forgive us our debts. Why not forgive us our sins? Forgive us our trespasses or mistakes is, is the very real reality of when we fail to give God and to give others what they deserve from us as an image bearer of God. It's like a debt. And in all of the little and big ways that we've done it over the course of our lives, there is an eternal 200,000 years worth debt of which we stand now in the red. And so what we find is this, the miracle of the story is keeping just 200,000, and the king goes, compassion, forgiveness. Now, Tim Keller identifies in this passage as a wonderful little tidbit here on how this is Jesus's definition of forgiveness. So not the excuse, not the counterfeit, the ignoring, but also not the no forgiveness or the earned forgiveness. There's four little things right here that are the definition of genuine forgiveness. And the first is the debt being named. Of the debt and what has been done or accrued being actually named before the parties and also named the consequences of what that would look like. The debt of what punishment, what vengeance, whatever language you wanna use, what that would look like. What does he say? The debt is named, 200,000 years, right? The 10,000 talents. And then what is named over him? You, your family, everything you have is gonna be sold. And because, and that's not even gonna pay for it. It's not like you're gonna go free after that. But it's just to take a, it's more about punishment than it is about somehow making restitution and making this right. So the first basis of hear me here, forgiveness is not excusing or ignoring. It's naming what has been done publicly. There are so many places where the language of forgiveness has been abused in particular by abusers who call for forgiveness from those that they're abusing. But what that looks like then is we don't go to the authorities. We don't tell anyone this stays between just you and me. True forgiveness requires what's been done being named. But then it continues. Specifically in that language there, that the master has compassion. Other older translations put it as pity. It's sympathy. Uh, the, 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 the Greek language, the word is, it's one of these rare but like beautiful ones. It's splachnizomai. And it's about, it's, it's splachna is your gut. And it's this visceral breaking of you over what you're seeing. And so true forgiveness is, is, comes when we look into the person's story and what's led to why they did what they did. And we begin to have an explanation, not so that we can excuse them, but so that we can identify with them in the midst of, we're all, to go back to Claire Dederer's language, monsters in rehab. That there's a brokenness that I see within myself and I see what's led to you acting this way, that hurt people hurt people. Abusers are often the ones who abuse that, that we're, oh, the reason why you talk to me that way is because, of, right, we're able to not write off, not ignore, but able to identify with them and have compassion for what they've done. But then that leads to forgiveness, the forgiving of the debts. And this is not the erasure of the debts. Remember how big uh, the, uh, the, the money was, how big the debt was. There's no just like, you know, we'll slide that one under the rug. We'll let that one go. S someone's going to pay the 200,000 years debt. And the king chooses in this moment, rather than enforcing him to pay something he could never pay back, the king says, I'll eat the cost. The way to think about this is, um, well, his name rhymes with Dave Ferguson. He was my friend in high school. We won't name him for real, but it was Dave. Um, and we were in the parking lot, uh, maybe at Andy's Frozen Custard, for anyone who's been in Springfield knows. Uh, we're Andy's Frozen Custard, and he's being silly, um, and he's, he, he tries to do the cool, like, slide across the hood of the car thing on my car, um, my really cool 2002 Honda Accord. And, uh, and, and he, he dents the hood, <laughs> and then it, it's not coming back up. So here's, here's the thing. Three things can happen with Ryan and Dave in the dented hood, right? 
is I can force Dave to pay for the dented hood, right? Or I can, I can forgive him and pay for the dented hood, or I can just live with the dented hood. A very poor, like high school, college student. It was the third that we went with here, right? And what we find though, is that if God is the God of justice, the God who's wanting to put things right, the third option can't stand. He can't just let things be. And so the decision is either between God eating the cost of the debt himself, taking it upon himself, or him forcing you to pay for it. And what Jesus is getting at here is that true forgiveness is a form of self-suffering. It is a death to self. It is a costly forgiveness because we, now we've named what you've done and what it deserves and all of that. And I'm saying, I'm choosing actually to not hold my vengeance against you but actually to allow it to dissipate and die within myself. And it's painful and it's hard. But then finally, after forgiveness, the king releases him. It's an openness and an opportunity for reconciliation and restoration and a new life on the other side. True, costly forgiveness must have all four. If I, if I don't name the debt that I'm just excusing or if I'm just ignoring... If I don't have compassion, my forgiveness, and seeing myself within them, I will always be doing it from a, an aggrandizing, I'm better than you kind of forgiveness. If I, if I don't forgive, then, then it just sits out in the open and it festers like a wound in both parties. And if I don't release, then that person, in my eyes, is always defined by what they did. True forgiveness entails all four of these. And so what then is the response of the forgiven servant. Verse 26. Oh, excuse me, 25. Nope. 28. 28. Thank you. Who was that? There you go. 28. (laughs) What happened next? The servant went out. The servant who was just forgiven 200,000 years of a debt. That very servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who uh, owed him 100 denarii which is one day's wage, a denarii. So it's 100 days wage. So it's not nothing. In comparison to 200,000 years, it's, it's, it's absolutely nothing. And so the servant grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. At this, this fellow servant fell down and began begging him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. The, the servant now utters the same words to a fellow servant that this servant, you know, in the story five minutes ago, gave to the king. You would think it would shock him awake, but no, he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay back what he owed. So this story, as much as it's about the beauty of the forgiveness of what God as king has done for you and I, is ultimately a story about the abuse of forgiveness. What happens when the forgiveness of God, or even in this story, a king and a servant, doesn't change someone? Verse 32, 31. When the other servants saw what he had taken, what had taken place, these other servants witnessing, they were deeply distressed. They went and they reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you also have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master tortured Oh, sorry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back everything that was owed, the 200,000 years debt. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. So Jesus ties together here the forgiveness that you give to others with the forgiveness that you've received in such an inseparable bond that to say no to forgiving others isn't God saying no to you, It's you saying no to God's forgiveness in the first place. N.T. Wright writes, you'll see behind me, in particular, having received God's forgiveness themselves, this being followers of Jesus, they were to practice it amongst themselves. Not to do so would mean they had not grasped what was going on. As soon as someone in these Jesus communities refused to forgive a fellow member, he or she was saying, in effect, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived. I don't think the forgiveness of sins has actually occurred. You can go to the next. Failure to forgive one another wasn't a matter of failing to live up to some new bit of moral teaching. It was cutting off the branch you were sitting on. 
The only reason for being kingdom people, for being Jesus's people, was that the forgiveness of sins was happening. And so if you didn't live forgiveness, you were denying the very basis of your new existence. I love that line. The failure to forgive others is cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. You exist and live within the forgiveness that God has brought about because of his pity, because of his forgiveness. And so it's not God doing some kind of achieved forgiveness, waiting to make sure you do it. But if the moment comes and you refuse to forgive, it reveals you don't actually believe in, in mercy and forgiveness at all. You still think at some level that you've earned God's forgiveness, that you paid him, and so now you can hold that out of others. When we hold on to this, it just falls apart. And so when Jesus says back in the Lord's Prayer with his footnote, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, those two are so tied up together, not because we earn our forgiveness by forgiving others, but because it's, it's the life that you live. To separate those two would be to separate the very essence of what God is doing in this world, both for you and now through you. And you just, you can't do that. And so we just hold how in the world, this is, this is why, this is why. And what's interesting is the dynamic here of how do, we, how do we get ourselves to move in some new direction, some new space of, of forgiveness being actually possible like this. The key thing, once again, Tim Keller in his book on forgive, I'm gonna actually pitch it to you in a moment. Uh, one of the things he identifies here that is so good is the primary problem with most of us in our apprehension and our resistance to asking for forgiveness and then also giving it is, as we see in this story, that we are servants who are seeking to make ourselves king. We're servants who are seeking to make ourselves judge. It's pride. It's an arrogance where we refuse to see ourselves in the debt that we actually have towards God, but also the pride and the arrogance of putting ourselves up in the position of king over others and what they've done. And the way forward, the thing that will transform your heart, where this actually begins to become a little bit more available to you, is when we begin, how do you turn from being a servant who wants to act like the king and the judge? The way that you do this is by seeing the king who made himself like a servant. You, you see in Jesus Christ the judge who allowed himself to be judged. You look at the cross of Jesus Christ and you allow that to be the space where you see Jesus going and taking on my eternal debt onto himself, dying for my sins to bring about the forgiveness that I have. And so the reality is, is why in the world would I want to be judge? Why would I want to be king when I've got one that's so much better at it than I am? I've got one that's so much more beautiful in the work that he's done than I am. And so I can, tr I can set myself down, quit pretending that I've got it all together, and I can allow forgiveness to be the breath that I now breathe, to be graced and I'll be the life that I live in. Because I don't need to pretend that I'm king because there's a much better one and his name is Jesus. There's a much better judge who's far more trustworthy in his edicts than I am. And so I can give myself over to trusting Jesus and allowing that forgiveness to be my story and then overflowing out into how I give it to others. And one of the primary places that we enter into this work is through prayer. And so to bring us back to the Lord's Prayer and in particular the daily prayer practice that we've been building over the course of this series is this is simply just entered into in two, five, 10 minutes, however long you might have set for your prayer practice time, is as we get to the, this line, as we enter into two forms of prayer, one is confession and one is commitment. Confession of our debts and our need for forgiveness is the first one, where we name the 200,000-year debt that we have before God. We name the debts of the day. And so one of the ways that you can do this is by thinking through blatant, deliberate, unconscious, or inner orientation types of, of, of debt, of sin, of mistakes, and failures. The blatant would be the things that uh, even those who don't follow Jesus would agree are just not great. <laughs> this would be the things on the far end like murder or adultery. Lying in some cases is still kind of seen as a moral faux pas. The next is the deliberate, which these would be when we go against the confirmed kind of teachings of scripture where we made a choice. And then unconscious would be, I'm looking back over my day and I'm realizing, oh my gosh, the way that I told the person what I had done or, or the way that I was reeling something, I, I baked all of that in a bunch of like 
making myself look better than I actually am. And I didn't re- I'm not realizing that until now I look back on it. It's unconscious. And then inner orientation would just be the ways of distrust, the ways of shame, of perfectionism, right? Whatever your personality type might be, where you're going, these are not leading me into the person that God has made me to be. And you can just simply confess to you, Jesus, I'm coming before you today, naming and acknowledging God, the way that I talked about her was not, was not becoming of who you've made me to be. One of the best, most helpful ways to do this is you go back through the Lord's Prayer and you begin to think through, God, what are the ways in which I have not lived as your child, my heavenly father? What are the ways in which I have not honored your name with my life? What are the ways in which I haven't mediated your kingdom of justice and forgiveness? What are the ways in which I have not surrendered over to your will? And you just can name those Jesus, I'm bringing this before you, trusting that your, your mercies are new every day, and Jesus, that you taught me to pray this way for daily me to name all of these things. And again, this is not that if you forget to do this on Tuesday and you die on Wednesday that you, you know, sorry, like you're going to hell. Like that's, I grew up thinking that and it was terrifying to me. The whole point of this is there is a yes and amen, a one-time confession and commitment to following Jesus. But then as we follow him, there's a line Jesus makes about when Peter wants to get everything washed, not just his feet. He says, you've already been made clean by my words. And so now there's no longer anything for you to wash except for your feet. The early church took this as there's the one confession that washes us when we become Christians. And then as we walk through our lives, our spiritual feet, so to speak, get dirty. And so we still need to wash those, right? And that's not about salvation. It's about walking in the newness of life that we have. And so we just continue to bring these things before Jesus, believing that just like my daily bread, Jesus assumes that in the words of Martin Luther, all of life is repentance, that I'm a monster in rehab. There's a deep work that God is doing within my heart, making me into a new human. And that means that there's going to be wins and losses along the way. And part of my humility is standing before God and not pretending that I'm someone I'm not, but just naming, here I am. I know you've made me and called me to be more, and yet we're still working on it. And so would you, would you once again cover me in the work of Jesus? Would you cover this and, and free me? And then we move in to commitment to forgive others where we begin to pray and we just name. Again, go back to the thing, to, to Jesus' kind of framework there. First, I just, in prayer, I name the debt. I name what's been done to me. I don't excuse it, but I name it. I then begin to prayerfully ask for God to give me compassion for that person. For some of the things that we've gone through, and I'm not immune to this, some of the things that we've gone through, that requires a lot of prayer and a lot of time. And then we begin to forgive, which is, again, not forgive. It's not that everything goes back to normal. It's a decision that I'm not going to carry and relate to you from a place of vengeance and ill will, either in mind, word, or deed. But I'm, gonna be com- I'm committed to your good, and I release for reconciliation and restoration. But then part of what we have to enter into is wisdom. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to this, there are many questions about what does that kind of forgiveness look like as there are people in this room. And so that's why I was joking about, um, honestly, I'm just you getting Tim Keller's book on, this is the last book he uh, wrote before he passed this past year, um, and it's on forgiveness. Why should I and how can I? The practical bits in the back half are like where most of the questions that we have really get answered. But I'll just, I'll just name a couple of things here. One, when it comes to forgiveness, this is going to be fire hydrant for a second, and then we're going to close, okay? And, and, I, and I wish I could give more to a fire hydrant, but I, these are things I need to answer because of the weight that they carry. One, there is, a, there is oftentimes forms of forgiveness that we give to a spouse, to a friend, to our community, where, where we can name the debt with God, but we don't necessarily need to call them out and, and bring it out. Because there's little slights, there's things that happen, in particular with coworkers who may not be followers of Jesus, we're not committed to the same way of life. And so the reality is, is there's sometimes things where I can forgive, take it in, and I can hold that before God, and I can forgive them and move forward. And so sometimes that's just part of like, that's marriage. It's like, it's like I, I need to pick the things that I, that I want to bring before my wife or that she needs to bring before me. Because if we're just always going, you did this, you did, we live together. We see everything. And so there's a lot of times you're like, man, I can just hold that, I, you know, cranky or me, what, distant, whatever. The, the, yesterday, there's a lot going on. I have compassion for them, but I don't need to drag them into this. I can just forgive and move on. But then there are times when we need to sit down and go, hey, there's been a pattern of this or there was this one thing that was particularly like very hurtful and, and we need to talk. We need to name the debt. 
We need a, I need a chance to, for you to repent and, and for me to, right? We need, and then, right? And so sometimes we've got to have that. But the problem is, is that most often, most of us will pick one or two. We are either always tell, having to have like a, a conversation about everything with everybody and it, and it tears down our relationships or we just kind of are like the forgive and forget people, right? Where they're like, oh, they didn't. We're just like, oh yeah. And we were just carrying bitterness, right? And, and the reality is, is what we need is to walk in a wisdom where the spirit guides us that sometimes we're able to forgive and move on. And other times we need to have a conversation. And most often the one that you're most uncomfortable with right now is probably the one the spirit's gonna lead you into. Now, a word on justice and a word on abuse. First, when it comes, I know, just a normal Sunday, right? I heard someone gave a deep exhale for me. Um, just forgiveness is not antithetical to justice. Forgiveness is the only way to truly do justice. If I am motivated out of vengeance and revenge against an oppressor or against someone who's done something against me, my search for justice will always be, one, some of what Claire Dederer was talking about, and my search for justice will always be making them pay. When I'm able to forgive, I'm able to then move into the conversation about justice from a place of actually wanting what's best for them and for those around them. I'm wanting the best for everyone. And so whatever consequences, whatever details of reparative justice or even, or even judgment, but all of those are being done from the posture of what's best for them and for everyone as opposed to going after them. Does that make sense? Secondarily, with abusers, there's, just, there, there's, a, there's a deep, deep thing here that forgiveness, forgiveness does not mean that you don't call the police, or the authorities or whatever. Forgiveness does not mean that you just sit and take it. What forgiveness means is that as I move forward in walking out the implications of what's been done or what's being done to me, I am doing it once again motivated by God, how give me strength, what's actually best for the relationship and what's best for them. And oftentimes, you can see within an abuser, within someone, with, with taking someone to, to an intervention, having an intervention, take, like, take rehab, all of these different things, those can be motivated not out of, get them away from me, I don't want anything to do with them, get them out of my life, but this is the, this is the only hope for them at this place. And so there are some of you that have, that have taken on abuse, there are some of you, and, and what you heard from your abuser was forgiveness, I'm gonna try and do better next time, just give me another shot. And the reality is, is sometimes the best thing for them is calling someone else to be involved and to help work through what that looks like. And this doesn't just look in, in you know, spousal abuse or something, like, or sexual abuse, but, but this is even in verbal abuse with leadership dynamics of people that maybe you work under or, or, or even this, my, my experience, and, and this is Ryan's kind of moment, is, is my experience of being in really unhealthy church contexts. And, and it was a lot of the, something would happen, something would be said, behavior would be done, and then the excuse would be given that all of these extenuating circumstances of the difficulty of ministry and managing people made me do that. And, and so I'm sorry that I did that, but, yeah, right? But I'm genuinely a good person. It's all these people in ministry that make that hard. And, and so there's individuals that, that I, I can genuinely say from the bottom of my heart, I want what's best for them. I've worked through with prayer and therapy, like all of that so to get to the point of release where I'm entrusting them. My desire 100% would be reconciliation and a restored relationship. And yet there has been an ongoing pattern where for their benefit and also my own health and being attentive to those that I actually can give my space to, it's not that the door's closed, but I'm no longer knocking. And that, and, and that can 100% exist within, within forgiveness. Most of us, you might have missed, what was Jesus teaching right before the, the forgiveness parable that we looked at in Matthew 18? If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established if he doesn't pay attention to them, then bring it to the whole community, the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let them be like a Gentile or a tax collector set outside of the community of faith. So, so forgiveness is not irrespective of consequences. Forgiveness is not irrespective of, of putting up healthy boundaries around individuals. What it means is I'm not motivated in any of that by a place of vengeance or making you pay. I'm seeking for your good. And even church discipline can be carried out that way. So just to bring this all back and set up as a time of response and what's been most helpful for me. 
in giving forgiveness and also thinking about it for myself. As the Christian view of forgiveness rotates, it revolves, it's saturated in the work that Jesus has done at the cross. And so when I come to the cross, I am reminded of one, the deep debt that I have carried that for me to follow Jesus and to receive his atoning work on the cross is to name that that 200,000 year debt has my name on it too. And yet Jesus is the good king who became the servant and went to the cross for me. It's, it, I simultaneously see at the cross that I am more broken and flawed than I currently see and I am absolutely more loved and forgiven than I, I could ever imagine. And so I sit there at the cross and I receive that. And so when I then ask for forgiveness, it's an act of hope and trust that God is not done with me. And even this thing that I am terrified to name before God is not the end of my story, but there's an ongoing work that God's doing. And the same is true for those that we forgive. There are some things that have been done to you that, man, you just struggle to let go and forgive, to move from vengeance and, and, and the payment of what they did to you. And, and honestly, one of the best things that you can do is you can look at Jesus on the cross. You can see that God doesn't excuse or wipe what they did underneath the rug. You see that Jesus went to his cross for that too. And so whenever you have that moment where there's welling up, where you're struggling to forgive because it's a lifelong movement, but when you find that struggle developing and building within you, the most helpful thing that you can do is to name the depth and the darkness of what was said, what was done to you, and then realize that if, when that person is repentant, that person is in Jesus, that means that thing went to Jesus' cross as well. So there is no absence of justice. There is no Jesus kind of winking at what's been done to you. Jesus died for that thing. And so now I can release and surrender that what I, what I feel like is coming for them was it's been done. And then simultaneously, at the same time, when people are unrepentant, I go to the cross and there's two things that I'm doing. One is I am praying and praying and praying for that person, for what they did to me or what they've done to others, that that too might be added and nailed to the cross. And so it allows me to forgive them in hope that that might somehow bring them to the place of that being put on the cross with them. And if they go a whole life and they're not repentant and they continue in what they've done, the cross reminds me that God is serious about justice and judgment. And all he asks me to do is simply quit pretending that I'm the king. And so forgiveness is an act of saying, God, I entrust them to you as the faithful and just judge. And so I forgive in hope of what you might do, but in trust that no matter where history goes, the, the quote that we, it's just so wild how broken our view of God is. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And the way that you can forgive is by truly believing that. The moment that you be, be, begin to believe that God isn't going to be a just judge is the moment that you begin to think that you have to be the one to do it. But when we surrender, we can move into a posture of forgiveness and release both in the ways that we view ourselves and in the ways that we view others.